turn with me, if you will, in God's Word to the New Testament, to the Epistle of Paul to the Corinthians, his first letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where I'd like to read for you verses 23 to the end of the chapter. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 to the end of the chapter, and we are going to consider this morning the subject of mass confusion. Hear now God's word. For I received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In like manner also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat the bread or drink the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man prove himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he that eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment unto himself, if he does not discern the body. For this cause many among you are weak and sickly, and not a few sleep. But if we were to discern ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Wherefore, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait one for another. If any man is hungry, let him eat at home, that your coming together be not unto judgment, and the rest will I set in order whenever I come. And thus far the reading of God's word. Over the last couple of weeks, and actually over the last month or so, there's been a great deal of attention paid to the fact that the Roman Catholic Pope has visited the United States of America. A great deal has been said about the controversies within the Roman Catholic Church, the difficulty that that communion has in retaining its priests and retaining its people and getting them to honor the dictates of the Pope. But even for all of that, this was pretty much a positive media event. This was a matter where most people seem to have been rather impressed or rather happy that the Pope showed up, a man of this religious significance, and shared with his people, and shared with all of the people, and encouraged those who were not of the Roman Catholic persuasion to be joined to that church. Now, what did the Pope do when he was in this country of religious significance? What was the purpose of his trip, apart from the public relations uh, benefits that may have been gained by that? Well, you know that the Pope came to this country to celebrate the Mass. He came to this country to perform the Mass in a number of cities selected by those who run his itinerary, where those of Roman Catholic persuasion could come together in huge arenas or stadiums in most cases, thousands and thousands at one time, to engage in what is the highest act of worship in the Roman Catholic Church, and that being the Mass. This morning I'd like to talk to you about the Mass under the title of Mass Confusion. I'd like to suggest to you that if we will take a calm and dispassionate look at the Pope of the Roman Catholic Church and what he is doing in the Mass, we would not welcome him to our shores or be glad that he was here. And that seems such a harsh thing to say about a man with such a wonderful, cute personality, a man that seems to be so easy to get along with, so warm and congenial. I wish to suggest to you, however, that if we are Christians, we weigh all things not by our own subjective or social feelings about things, but we weigh things against the holy standard, the unchanging 
rule of God's word. And brought to that standard, we see the Roman Catholic Pope, the Roman Catholic Church, and particularly the centrality of their mass as falling short of the glory of God and as being not a positive gain for godliness, but in fact sinful before God. Now, why am I making such strong statements? In the first place, I would think people might suggest Roman Catholicism has changed, Dr. Bonson. You must remember, we're not dealing with the same Roman Catholic Church of the Middle Ages, the Roman Catholic Church at the time of the Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church that Luther had to rise up against and against which Calvin thundered. We're dealing with a church that has undergone change and transformation. A lot of things are different in the Roman Catholic Church these days. And I need to suggest, uh, I need to correct that suggestion, I think, at the very beginning of this morning's message so that you'll um, not be misled from the importance of what I have to say. The Roman Catholic Church has, in many ways, changed, all of them peripheral. The Roman Catholic Church has not, indeed the Roman Catholic Church may not change in any of the crucial matters of doctrine which it has promulgated for centuries. The three most important councils of the Roman Catholic Church, as we know that church today, are the Council of Trent, the First Vatican Council, and the Second Vatican Council. The Council of Trent, obviously, is many years old. It ended in the year 1563. The First Vatican Council is a little over a century old. It convened and uh, was ended in 1870. And then the Second Vatican Council, which uh, some of us will still remember, we were alive at the time, ended in 1965. And what I want you to see is that for whatever changes have taken place between Trent and Vatican I and Vatican II, they are not essential changes in the Roman Catholic teaching. At the Council of Trent, it was decreed that whoever disagreed with the doctrines of the Roman Catholic Magisterium was accursed of God. To differ with what the Council of Trent said was to bring your eternal damnation, or so they said. At the Council of Trent, the Roman Catholic Church decreed that it alone had the right to interpret the Bible. And it placed tradition, the tradition of the church and the popes, on the same level of authority as the scripture itself. Now, was any of this changed at Vatican I in the 1870s? Well, not at all. Vatican I declared that when the pope defines doctrine regarding faith or morals, that is to say, when the pope speaks ex cathedra from his chair, when he gives an official pronouncement, his definitions are, and I quote now, irreformable of themselves and not from the consent of the church. They are not based on the consent of the church. The pope himself has the right to declare these things, and when he declares them from his chair and officially, they are irreformable. We usually translate that infallible. But irreformable is the better way of putting it, because, you see, that reminds those of us who trace our spiritual heritage back to the Reformation that the Roman Catholic pope cannot be reformed. What he says is irreformable by his own declaration and that of his church. Vatican II repeated that doctrine, repeated the doctrine that the Pope's declarations are irreformable and that the Roman Catholic Church is the only true church. You need to be aware for whatever may be said about liberals within the Roman Catholic communion, whatever public relation ploys you may find for those who are trying to show a more flexible Roman Catholic Church, that Pope John the 23rd, who called the first session of the Second Vatican Council, 
as well as Pope Paul VI, who presided at the end of the Second Vatican Council, both of these popes emphasized that no changes would be made in the doctrinal structure of the church. It was at Vatican II in the 1960s that the Roman Catholic Church officially issued the Constitution of the Church, a document which teaches that priests have the power of consecrating and offering the body and blood of our Lord and of remitting sins. It is true that the liturgy of the Roman Church was updated at that time by the introduction of what's called the New Mass. Remember, however, that the key change in the Mass was only one of language. The New Mass could be offered in the common tongue of the people, except for the prayer of consecration, which must still be said in Latin. The doctrinal content of the Church remains unchanged. The doctrinal content and conception of the Mass remains unchanged, and I would remind you, must remain unchangeable, because according to the Roman Communion, the declarations of that Church, especially the official declarations of the Pope, are irreformable. With that in mind, I'd like us this morning to look at the Roman Catholic Mass and to understand what a massive confusion it is in terms of God's Word. The Roman Catholic Mass has changed in outward peripheral matters, but the essence of the Mass and the conception of the Mass have stayed the same for centuries and always will be that until God and His providence and His good grace removes the Roman Catholic Church from the face of the earth because its doctrine is irreformable. Well, what is this irreformable conception of the Mass? To put it briefly, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that the bread and the wine of the Lord's Supper are changed by the power of the priest at the time of the prayer of consecration into the actual body and blood of Jesus himself. And they are then raised before the altar in the priest's hands and offered up to God for the sins of the living and the dead. The audience separated from all of this by an altar and by a rail that makes it clear that they have no right to approach that altar, the audience is nothing more but spectators to the drama of the priest creating the body and blood of Jesus in his hands and offering it to God as a sacrifice. And what the people in the Roman Catholic Church see, especially in the uh, pre-1965 form of the Mass, what the people see is an unbelievably complex and elaborate ritual. Some of you come out of Romanist backgrounds. You know what I'm talking about. Some of you who are Protestant by upbringing nevertheless have seen a Mass at a distance and know what I'm talking about. But others of you may not have ever been there. You need to understand what a regalia this is, what a complex ritual this is, this Mass. The priest makes the sign of the cross 16 times at different points in the Mass, turns toward the congregation at six defined times during the Mass, lifts his eyes to heaven eleven times, kisses the altar eight times, folds his hands four times, strikes his breast ten times, bows his head twenty-one times, genuflects eight times, blesses the altar by the sign of the cross twenty-one times, prays secretly eleven times, prays aloud thirteen times, covers and uncovers the chalice ten times, and there are many more things to be mentioned. Do you get the point? This is full of mechanical ritual that must be memorized, because if it's not done properly, it may invalidate the sacrament altogether. The priest is dressed in elaborate symbolism, and he performs this drama of the Mass in a setting of a sacred place, 
I remember in high school when I used to deliver flowers for a florist after school. Whenever I delivered flowers to the Roman Catholic Church in town, I could not take them up to the front of the church and place them. There had to be a, a helper there, a woman who would put uh, something over her head as a sign of submission and respect, and only she could carry the flowers beyond the rail up there. That is a sacred place where the priest does this ritual. It's filled with candles and bells and incense and music and any number of other trappings that are designed to accentuate the mysterious effect of the Mass. And I want to say at the very outset that all of this stands in stark contrast to the simplicity and the beauty of the Lord's Supper at its institution by Christ. Do you notice how few verses it takes Paul to relate for us in 1 Corinthians 11, the institution of the Lord's Supper? Not with the genuflection, with the covering of the chalice and the turning to the people and the sign of the cross and the kissing of the altar and all the rest. But in just three or four simple verses, he recounts how Jesus gave bread and explained it and gave wine and explained it. The simplicity of New Testament worship stands in stark contrast to the traditions and all of the hocus-pocus of Roman Catholic worship. I hope most of you will remember from our Sunday School class of late the regulative principle of worship. We believe that nothing should be done in the worship of God that claims religious significance that is not commanded by God himself in the scriptures. With the passing away of the old covenant priesthood, with its visual symbolism and details, with the passing away of that by the work of our great high priest Jesus Christ, the one who was symbolized by all of those details, remember, the new covenant form of worship now centers on the proclaimed word of God and needs no ritual complexity or elaborate symbolism. By the way, we must further say there is no support for the practice which has been made official at the Council of Constance in 1415, no support for the practice of the Roman Catholic Church of having the priest alone partake of the wine, leaving only the bread to the people. You see, Christ served both elements to his people at the time of instituting the supper. And it seems to me not only unbiblical but unreasonable for the Roman Catholic Church not to serve the wine to its people. You see, if it's adequate for the priest alone to partake of the wine, then it should be just as acceptable and sufficient for the priest to alone partake of the bread. Why is it that they don't do that then? Why doesn't the priest do everything for the people? Take the bread and the wine and just leave it at that? We need to understand that the Roman Catholic Church believes that the wafer that is distributed is in fact the very flesh of Jesus and the wine that is drunk is in fact the very blood of Jesus and therefore to avoid desecration of the holy body of our Lord it is possible to put a wafer in someone's mouth and see to it that none of it is destroyed falling on the ground or what have you but it's much more difficult to keep the wine from being spilled or a little drop to fall on the ground which of course would be showing disrespect for the body and blood of Jesus and so we'll have to come back to that understanding of the bread and the wine as well. But right now, just notice the plain biblical fact that in Matthew 26, when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, he said at the time of distributing the cup, all of you drink this. All of you. He didn't say just the priest among you. He didn't say simply those who come behind the rail in the sacred place. He said all of you drink it. And Paul warns the members of the congregation at Corinth 
in 1 Corinthians 11:27, not to eat the bread or drink the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. A command that would be totally superfluous if Paul thought that the people wouldn't be drinking the cup anyway. The Roman Catholic Church has obviously added to the Word of God at this particular point by withholding the cup from God's people. And yet I want to tell you this morning, we have far more fundamental objections to the Mass than these two that I've brought up. Already I've said it violates the regulative principle of worship, all of this elaborate ritual that is not found in the Word of God. I've said, on the other hand, the withholding of the cup from the people of the Church is contrary to the biblical teaching, is contrary to common sense, is inconsistent. And those are two serious objections, but I have three far more serious objections to the Mass that we're going to focus on this morning. For you see, the Roman Catholic Mass is not simply another form of the Lord's Supper, more ritualistic to which we are accustomed. It would be easy for us to think that. Lutherans take the Lord's Supper in one way, Baptists take the Lord's Supper in one way, Presbyterians do it in one way, Roman Catholics do it in another way. And there's kind of like a continuum there from the less to the more ritualistic ways of doing the Lord's Supper. But that would be a very false conception. The Roman practice of the Mass is not simply the Lord's Supper put in a more ritualistic garb, if you will. It is, in fact, a totally alien conception of the Lord's Supper that we need to get hold of. There are three ideas connected to the Roman Mass which I want us to analyze and evaluate from a biblical standpoint this morning. You see, the Roman Mass is central to its worship. One, because according to the Roman Catholic Church, it is necessary as a means of salvation. The sacrament is indispensable to salvation. And the sacrament, indispensable to salvation, is central to its worship, containing the notion that it is a continuation of the sacrifice of Christ upon the cross. The Mass is Christ sacrificed upon the cross continually. And thirdly, the elements of that Mass are transubstantiated into the actual body and blood of Christ. And we're going to, this morning, look at those three points in passing. First of all, the question of whether the sacrament is a means of salvation and indispensable to it. Secondly, the question of whether the sacrament is a continuation of Christ's sacrifice upon the cross. And thirdly, the question of whether the elements are, in fact, transubstantiated into the body and blood of Christ. You need to know that the Roman Catholic Church actually teaches these things, as I've told you. These are not just my Protestant misrepresentations and distortions of their teaching. Pope Pius IV, in the year 1564, promulgated the Tridentine Profession of Faith. And in it, we read, I profess that in the Mass is offered to God a true, proper, and propitiatory sacrifice for the living and the dead. And that in the most holy sacrament of the Eucharist, there is truly, really, and substantially the body and blood together with the soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that there is a conversion of the whole substance of the bread into the body and of the whole substance of the wine into the blood, which the Catholic Church calls transubstantiation. The Council of Trent declared, and I quote, the sacrifice in the Mass is identical with the sacrifice of the cross inasmuch as Jesus Christ is a priest and victim both. The only difference lies in the manner of offering, which is bloody upon the cross and bloodless on our altars. The New York Catechism 
of the Roman Catholic Church declares Jesus Christ gave the sacrifice of the Mass to leave to his church a visible sacrifice which continues his sacrifice on the cross until the end of time. The Mass is the same sacrifice as the sacrifice of the cross. Holy Communion is the receiving of the body and blood of Jesus Christ under the appearance of bread and wine. And then one more, the Baltimore Catechism. It is a mortal sin not to hear Mass on a Sunday or a holy day of obligation unless we are excused for a serious reason. They also commit mortal sin who, having others under their charge, hinder them from hearing Mass without a sufficient reason. And so the Mass must be heard. It's a mortal sin not to. The Mass is the offering up of the literal body and blood of Jesus and a bloodless sacrifice before God for the living and the dead. And so let's ask our first question. Is the Roman Mass necessary for salvation? The position of the Roman Catholic Church is called in theological circles sacerdotalism. Sacerdotalism maintains that God saves men, but not directly. He saves them indirectly through the means of the institutional church. Because the church is the depository of God's grace, men can be saved only if they're in a right communion with the church of God. The church dispenses the sacraments and thereby dispenses the grace of God to people. And Scripture stands directly against all such notions. Does the Bible teach us that we need that human priest standing between us and God? Does the Bible teach us that we cannot be saved unless we come and make our penance before a Roman priest and have him absolve us of our sins? Absolutely not. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. It does not say Jesus and other priests after him. It does not say Jesus and the Pope and all of his bishops and priests. There is only one mediator and he is completely adequate to the task. If we come to Jesus apart from all other human interceders, if we come to Jesus, we can be admitted into the very presence of God. Having then a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us draw near with boldness to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. You notice that coming through the intercession of Jesus, our great high priest, we find mercy before God. It is not dispensed through the church. It is not under the control of some human agent. But Jesus alone is adequate to bring us into God's presence and to find grace to help in time of need. You see, the scripture repeatedly speaks of men and women being saved without any mention, without any intervention of the church. Think of the dying thief who was told by Christ, this day you will be with me in paradise. Not after mass, not after taking the Lord's Supper, not after confessing your sins to some human priest and receiving absolution, but today you will be with me in paradise. In Titus 3, we read, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy through, no mention of the church, no mention of mass, no mention of sacrament, through the washing of rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit. In John 5, verse 24, Our Lord believes Him who sent me has crossed over from death to life. You hear the word of God, and you believe it, and in that moment you have been translated into the kingdom of God's dear Son. You have crossed over from death into life without an intervening step, without the church of Jesus Christ standing in your way.
for you see all of us as important as the church is and you know from my exposition and teaching how important I think it is but for however important the church is it is not the mediator between God and men the church is the body of Christ and it must be ruled by the rules of Christ to be sure but it is Christ that is the priest and Christ who is the head and it's only through Christ that men come to God away with this Roman Catholic understanding that the Lord's Supper and the form of the Mass is somehow necessary to salvation. You believe the Word of God, you know the washing of the Holy Spirit, and you are saved. Well, how about the second idea that we've looked at this morning, that the Lord's Supper is a sacrifice. The Roman Catholic Church teaches not only that it's necessary to have the Mass to be saved, it teaches that the Mass is a sacrifice of Jesus himself. Romanists claim that the Mass continues the sacrifice made by Christ upon the cross. It is a re-crucifixion of the Lord over and over and over again. However, the Roman Church immediately adds that the sacrifice of the Mass is an unbloody sacrifice. Well, you should know right away that's inadequate. There's no such thing as an unbloody sacrifice. Hebrews 9.22 tells us that that conception is contradictory. For without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. If it is not a bloody sacrifice, it is not an atoning sacrifice at all. There is no remission. John tells us in his first epistle, chapter 1, verse 7, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If there is a bloodless sacrifice, whatever that may mean, if there is a bloodless sacrifice, it does not have atoning power in it. But more importantly, I think, to hold that the Lord's Supper is in its nature a sacrifice completely obscures the argument that is advanced by the author of Hebrews to the effect that the work of Christ upon the cross once and for all put an end to the sacrifices since it completely accomplished all that the sacrifice were designed and foreshadowed to do. In your Bibles, you might look at Hebrews, the 10th chapter, verses 10 to 24. Hebrews 10, at the 10th verse, where the author tells us, By which will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest indeed stands day by day ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, the which can never take away sins. But he, when he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, henceforth expecting all his enemies to be made the footstool of his feet. For by one offering he has perfected forever them that are sanctified. How can we miss the thrust of that? The author of Hebrews says those earthly priests often are offering their sacrifices. Over and over and over again they must do this. But Christ, when he came as a priest, did it once and then sat down because his job was finished. Once for all, through one sacrifice, he has sanctified those who come to him. Look at Hebrews, the ninth chapter, verses 24 to 28. For Christ entered not into a holy place made with hands, like in pattern to the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear before the face of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often, as the high priest entered into the holy place year by year with blood not his own, else must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now, 
once at the end of the ages hath he been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been once offered to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time apart from sin to them that wait for him unto salvation. Once for all, one sacrifice made, never to be repeated. See, according to the theology of the New Testament, the sacrifice of Christ need not, indeed it may not, ever be repeated because it is an event which is sufficient in itself and completely unique. Nobody, even under the pretense of religious devotion, can add to the sacrifice of Christ. No one, even under the pretense of religious devotion, can continue the sacrifice of Christ. Paul said it well in Romans 6, Christ being raised from the dead dies no more. Where there is a continual offering for sin, the author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 10, verses 1 to 3 of that epistle, where there is a continual offering for sin, there is testimony that sin has not really and has not fully been taken away. And my friends, accordingly, you need to understand that the continuation of the Mass in the Roman Catholic Church, understood as the continuation of the sacrifice of Christ, is but testimony to the fact that in the Roman Church there is no assurance of salvation. There is no once-for-all declaration that it is finished, it is done. We can rely on the work of our intercessor, intercessor for us now. The Roman Church not only continues the sacrifice of the Mass, but in so doing, deprives God's people of the assurance of their salvation. Thirdly, we want to ask this morning, are the elements of the Mass truly transubstantiated into the body and blood of Jesus? Well, I think it's obvious, isn't it, that there are certain scientific absurdities about that. When people put the wafer in their mouth and chew it, it does not taste like human flesh. It does not feel like human flesh. It tastes and feels and digests just like bread. To this, the Roman Catholic Church answers, that's correct because the outward form, the outward attributes remain the same, whereas the underlying substance is changed. It's only the substance of the bread that is changed, not the attributes of the bread. What is the substance? Well, literally, it is that which stands under the attributes. The substance is supposed to be that which holds together all the attributes and makes them uniquely what they are. That has changed into flesh. However, the outward appearance, the outward form and attributes remain that of bread. I believe that the scientific absurdity of transubstantiation has now been answered with the philosophical absurdity of transubstantiation. It makes no sense whatsoever to say that the substance has changed, but you'd never know it from the appearance. You'd never be able to see it in terms of the outward manifestation, work, or personal interaction with the thing that has been transubstantiated. But you know, the problem with transubstantiation cannot be adequately seen in our looking at the scientific and philosophical absurdities of it. That's not the worst of it, my friends. The worst of it is this doctrine plays fast and loose and deceitfully with the Word of God. And that's a serious sin. Scientific and philosophical absurdities may bring social disapprobation upon you, but deceitfully handling the Word of God brings damnation. 
And the Word of God does not teach this. In the first place, notice the error of literalism here. Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood. If those words are to be interpreted literally, then we must, with all consistency, interpret literally the words of Jesus, I am the door, I am the vine, I am the Lamb of God. And then we're going to have to decide, which is it? Is Jesus really wooden? Is Jesus really woolly? Is Jesus really like a vine? Of course, that is not just poor literary interpretation. It is to be silly with the Word of God. It's a failure to treat it reverently and to read it as it intends to be read, the error of literalism. Moreover, at the time of the institution of the Lord's Supper, when Jesus was there with his disciples, the flesh and blood of Jesus were there at the table, not on the table. When Jesus picked up bread and he said, this is my body, would you please visualize that for a moment so you can get the strength of this argument? Jesus, with his own body, was holding the bread and saying, this is my body. Of course, at that time, it couldn't have been literally true. The bread was not an extension of his hand and arm. The bread was not his body because his body was holding the bread. It was not itself the bread. Nor did Jesus, when he partook of the Lord's Supper, eat his own flesh. And moreover, you will notice that after the meal, it is clear that the elements continued to be what they were before the meal, because Jesus says in Luke 22, verse 18, I shall not drink henceforth of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God has come. He says the fruit of the vine. This is after the meal. He continues to refer to it as simple wine. Before the meal and after the meal, it continued to be just that, the fruit of the vine. The bread did not become the body that was holding the bread. And so Jesus did not teach that the elements were to be a literal presence of his body. He rather said, as 1 Corinthians 11.25 tells us, do this in remembrance of me. In remembrance. This is a memorial of what took place. It is not the taking place, literally again, of that sacrifice. And Paul tells us in the very next verse of 1 Corinthians 11, that we do not continue to put Christ to death sacrificially. He says, rather, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so we remember and proclaim the meaning of these elements, but they are not, in fact, the sacrifice of the very literal body of Jesus over again. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 29, on the Lord's Supper, we therefore read the following evaluation. In this sacrament, Christ is not offered up to his Father, nor any real sacrifice made at all for remission of sins of the quick or the dead, but only a commemoration of that one offering up of himself by himself upon the cross once for all, and a spiritual oblation of all possible praise unto God for the same so that the popish sacrifice of the Mass, as they call it, is most abominably injurious to Christ's one and only sacrifice, the alone propitiation for all the sins of his elect. Those are strong words. You'll look hard to find in the confession that clear a condemnation as abomination of any other religious practice in that day 
But the Mass is an abomination. The Mass is an insult, not only to the teaching of God's Word about the nature of those elements, but all the more an insult to the work of Jesus Christ upon the cross, which was once and for all sufficient to atone for our sins. In closing, I want to ask you, my friends, my brothers and sisters, given this biblical refutation of the Roman Catholic doctrine of the Mass, it is not necessary for salvation. We've seen that. It is not a sacrifice continuing the crucifixion of Christ. It is not a transubstantiation of the body and blood of Jesus. Given this refutation from God's word of the Mass, can the Roman Catholic Pope seriously claim to be infallible? Since the teaching of the Pope, the irreformable teaching of the Pope, stands in contradiction to the word of God in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, we're logically forced to choose between the two because both cannot be correct. If the scriptures are infallible, then the Pope is not. The Bible tells us that God's word alone may be our religious guide and that it should not be supplemented with our own devices. Numbers 15.39 Remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them and seek not after your own heart and your own eyes. For as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.5, your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now we're faced with a difficulty. The Council of Trent, the First Vatican Council, and the Second Vatican Council all say that if we will not go along with the irreformable teaching of the Roman Church, symbolized in its head the Pope, then we are anathema from God, we are accursed. To which I answer the words of the Apostle Paul in Galatians 1, verse 8, But though we or an angel from heaven should preach unto you any gospel other than what we preached unto you, let him be accursed. And this morning you'll have to choose which of those threats you consider the most viable. The threat of Trent, that if you don't go along with the Mass, you are accursed of God, or the threat of the Apostle Paul, that if the gospel preached by the Apostles is departed from, let that person be accursed. And so that's why I said at the beginning of this morning's message, I'm not sure that the Pope's visit, the Pope's wonderful personality and his good intentions should be welcomed by us. For you see, this is a matter of eternal life and death. That's not a matter of social relations. That's not a matter of enjoying some other religious communion or diversity of approaches to God. This is a matter of eternal life and death. The Pope dangerously introduces mass confusion into the minds of men. And he dares to teach contrary to the word of God for the sake of human tradition. He is surely well-intentioned. He surely has a nice personality. But my friends, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would, this morning, guard our hearts and our minds from error. Lord, we do not wish to be like so many that are blown about by every wind of doctrine that comes about. Lord, we wish to be firmly established upon the rock words of Jesus Christ, our Savior. We don't wish to undergo the judgment and storm of God that will beat to nothing those who have found in their lives on the sands of human opinion. We ask, Father, you would save us from the foolishness of all those who add to your word, all those who try to invent elaborate ritual 
to supplement the way of worship you have provided for us. Lord, save us from those who would think they might continue the work of Jesus Christ, continue to sacrifice him, and absurdly believe that his body and blood are literally before them on the altar. Lord, save us from these people. Not that we might pride ourselves that we are Protestants. Not that we might pride ourselves that we are Presbyterians and not Roman Catholics, but that we might pride ourselves that we are Christians. And that the sacrifice of Christ is so dear and so precious and so adequate for us that we need not the traditions of men. Lord, save us from your curse that comes upon any who would tamper with the good news of Jesus Christ. For we pray in his name. Amen.